chapter 2. We're getting to a section that's uh, very beloved, near and dear to my heart. Uh, and it's all scripture. I mean, we love it all. But in 2 Timothy 2, there is the great poem of verses 11 through 13, which is a bit of a challenge exegetically and um, often used as a proof text theologically. And I just want to sink in a little bit and study it. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And to get to verse 11 through 13, the great poem, let's do the context. Uh, Well, I'll read the poem. It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. We're going to talk about eternal security today and God's plan for your life. And we're going to get it from the context of the passage, which... There's a couple of possible interpretations of the way to read that poem, but the context of the passage, I think, settles it. So let's get some context. Let's get a running start. We start in verse 1, as we've seen in First Timothy, or Second Timothy chapter 2. You, therefore, my child, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. You, therefore, my child, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and the things you heard from me, and the Greek is challenging, so you could just say in the presence, but it's through many witnesses, through the presence, the circumstance that there's the presence of many witnesses. These things that I've told you set before faithful men who will be fit to teach others also. By the putting forth the word that Paul has given Timothy in front of other faithful ones, they will be fit by that equipping to equip others to teach others. And that's the propagation. This is a great statement of the great commission from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. So you, Timothy need to be passing it on. Now context, second Timothy is the failed apostolic emissary pastor, the failed Timothy, who for some reason has let the light go out. The candle has been extinguished. The coals are smoldering and near to fully uh, just being cold. And Paul is coming in with a stick to the campfire to stir it back up. Paul is seeking to rekindle the spiritual gift in Timothy because he has somehow, we don't know, but something's happened in ministry where Timothy has sort of flamed out. He is burnt out. He is um, offline. And so that is the, um, the context for Um, for why Paul is writing Timothy. That's very important in context because what's not in question anywhere is whether Timothy is a believer or whether he has been justified by faith at the initial point of faith alone in Jesus Christ, as Paul teaches in Romans. This is not in question. We've read about this through through first and second Timothy. Timothy's a believer doing the work God has for him. In this case, he needs to rekindle that gift. So Paul says you need to do this work because we're in a method of, we're in a, a mission of propagation. Remember in first Corinthians, they're worried about who is the teacher, who's the speaker. We like Apollos, we like Paul, we're dividing over who baptized us. I prefer Jesus to all these humans that he sent, right? Well, we all do, but we don't divide over these things, right? The human instruments in the hands of God used by God, the Holy Spirit to propagate this work are irrelevant. It's irrelevant to who the human is. It's about the work of God through us. And it's true for every one of us. It doesn't matter who 
uh, pound the last railroad spike in to make the railroad work. It doesn't matter who uh, sands the door so then that we paint it so we look, the, the building looks nice. It doesn't matter who does the work. It matters that the Spirit of God is working in us and that it is God's work. And the great privilege is not that others know that we've done something or that the Corinthians prefer Apollos or Paul. The, the thing that matters is what does Jesus think about the work we've turned in? And so Timothy's saying, you, you, we all need to be fully engaged in this propagation. And Timothy, this is why you have to stir this back up. Get back to work. In verse 3, you therefore suffer hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And this is what you tell a soldier who's offline, who is in the, on the side of the road. He's, there's a puddle of mud and the dust between his feet where he's crouched into almost a fetal sitting fetal position and the tears are flowing and that mud puddle is growing from the tears and the dust and he is just broken down as a soldier and and Paul says it's time to stand up get a drink of water out of your canteen place it back into the canteen cup holder and snap the buttons and then put your rucksack back on and let's get back to the mission. That's what he's doing in the context. It's a Christian who has had hardship and is being encouraged to stand back up and go back to work. No one soldiering gets entangled in the affairs of civilian life so that the one who enlisted him, he may please. The reason principle here is that you're trying to please the boss. So you focus on the mission. You don't focus on things that are off mission. Verse five says, if anyone also competes as an athlete, he is not, he's not crowned as a victor unless he competes lawfully. If anyone wants the Stephanos, wants the, the victor's crown from uh, the athletic games, meaning the gold medal for our time, if you want the gold, then you've got to strictly deal with the rule book. So there's a set of principles and practices that the Lord Jesus wants from us, and you have to abide by the rules. Who knows what happened to flame out for, First Timothy, for Timothy? Who knows what, what the problem was? We know there was huge, a huge ministry challenge in Ephesus. We read, read it in Acts, and we've studied all about the witchcraft in Acts and the worship of Artemis, the Ephesians, and all the things that are problematic. We think of Corinth as the problem town, but apparently Ephesus was such a hard, uh, a hard time culturally and the culture leaches into the church and somehow it's, it's, it's derailed Timothy. Maybe Timothy just felt like they weren't listening to him. So he started, he started getting bitter and maybe in that bitterness that that was always a background smoldering context for anger. And maybe Timothy became guilty of outbursts of anger over ministry frustration. I mean, I can't imagine a pastor struggling with something like that. Or anyone being sarcastic in the pulpit in New England. I can't imagine these things, right? And, and, and so um, who knows what the problem is that, that sidetracked him. We know that we're not supposed to be guilty of, of being given to outbursts of anger and it disqualifies someone from ministry. And maybe there was a DQ. Maybe Timothy had to, to step down. Or maybe it was just that he found that all the deacons and the elders were tolerating him somewhat, but there, but there was a powerful elder's wife who was really wielding power and she took a dislike to Timothy or she just decided she wasn't going to submit to his pastoral authority or leadership, I should say. And so she started treating him like she was one of his grown children. And so, so he, no matter what he said, she would smirk and then others would watch her smirk and then it didn't matter. And he was completely ineffective. There's a woman problem in Ephesus again, Artemis of the Ephesians and so forth, maybe that is what we're talking about. We don't know. 
Don't let them despise your youth, Paul tells Timothy. The problem is, the point is, by God's design, we're not told what the problem Timothy had. We just know that he was offline. We just know he was off mission. He was, he was out of gas. And Paul is writing this letter to gas him back up. So he says to fill him back up and to get him back on, in the race. So here he says, by way of illustration, the athlete, you've got to compete lawfully. You've got to, you've got to work it according to the dictates of the specific game that you're playing. The game we're playing is serving Christ in the power of God, the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Serving Jesus Christ, not ourselves, and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, not our flesh, to the glory of God, not the glory of ourselves. And that means that there has to be a daily repentance, a daily recovery of that eternal perspective, a daily rearrangement of my character to fit the character of Christ. And it's, it, some days it comes quicker than others. But that's what we're talking about is you've got to get back on mission. And you got to do it according to the rules. And verse six, the final illustration is George, the farmer, the hardworking, uh, Georgon that's George, where they get the name George, the farmer, as for the hardworking farmer, it is necessary. This word, it is necessary that he receive the first share of the fruit. It's legitimate that the farmer gets his share of the fruit or the crops that he raises. And so Paul says, Timothy, these illustrations that we covered last time briefly are designed to get your attention and, and focus you on what you're supposed to do. Now I ask you a question. Is Paul asking Timothy, whether he has trusted in the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ as his savior, or is he asking whether he is walking in faith and dependence on Jesus Christ or walking by the power supplied by the Holy spirit in the work that God has called him to do? Which one of those two is the topic of second Timothy chapter two? The second one, we're way past Romans chapters three and four here, okay? We have someone that not only is justified by grace through faith as a child through the ministry of his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, we read in the beginning of Second Timothy. Not only do we have somebody that he says, I know that you have the life, but now he has worked in the work such that he has been experienced enough to have a great disruption, a great downfall in his experience. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily sin. Don't misunderstand. It's not necessarily some sort of lifestyle pattern of sin. It's not, uh, it's not the things that we might think of that are scandalous, but something scandalous uh, indeed has happened. And it, it, and it, the, the need is for Timothy to get back on the horse. So Paul says, after the three illustrations of the soldier, the athlete, and the, the farmer, he says, consider what I'm saying. Think about it. There's your command. It's in the imperative mood to think, concentrate, focus, to noeo, which where we get the word for to know something. One of the ways we get the word know, to know something. Consider what I'm saying. And then here's the promise for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This might be a life verse for you and me. Take what Paul said and think about it. Don't redefine it. The new perspective on Paul is they're doing it out in liberal evangelicalism, which is an oxymoron. Don't disregard Paul because Peter gave us an out. He said everything Paul writes is hard to understand. Some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Don't disregard Paul's words because, well, that was hard work. I mean, I only got through Romans 3 and I got 50 questions. I got 50 questions in 40 verses. Don't quit. Consider. Settle in. It's a big meal. It's going to take a while. Rome wasn't built in a day and the way you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So consider what I'm saying. A life verse for us. I just don't understand what pastor's talking about up there. You understand some of it. I'm speaking English for the most part. We have agreeance on this. It's not all English. That's a made up word, agreeance. 
I just want you all to know agreeance isn't a word. Anyway, consider what I'm saying for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I take that as a promise from the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Spirit to Timothy. And I think it's a good pattern for us. Think about it. Reflect on it. I had to do this with the passage at hand in verses 11 through 13. I had to do that for a while because I was struggling with the interpretation of the poem. And I'll show you why. I've never worked through 2 Timothy with you exegetically like I'm doing now. And by the way, by thinking through these things and by grabbing verse 7, I got my answer. Paul's talking to a Christian who needs to step back up. And he's told him again and again, it's going to hurt. Suffer hardship with me. Suffer together with me. Literally, sympatheo, suffer together with me. See, sometimes I speak Greek. Suffer together with me is the theme. And it has nothing to do with what you tell a non-believer. You don't start with a non-believer and say, here, I'm going to tell you some bad news. You're a sinner going to the lake of fire and that's really awful and it's going to be horrible, but you need to trust in Christ so that you can hurt. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not also trust in Christ and it'll all go perfectly with you and be smooth sailing. The gospel is that Jesus suffered for you and God raised him from the dead to offer you eternal life, which eventually is better and greater and higher and more wonderful than you and I could ever imagine. That's the gospel. Now, with the gospel comes the hardship. We're going to suffer in this world that is opposed to Christ. They hated him. They're going to hate us, his servants. They hated Christ. They're going to hate us. And that has been Timothy's experience. In a way, Timothy's, Timothy's extinguished state where he's just burnt and broken down on the side of the road and Paul's trying to grab him up and get up. We got to finish this rock march. In a way, Timothy's experience is proving what the scriptures say. It's going to be hard. And you can punch out and say, I'll quit. Man. I don't, I don't want to fight anymore. I have uh, enjoyed listening to uh, various conversations held by this former Navy SEAL officer, retiree named Jocko Willink. I don't know if you guys listen to him. I have no idea if he's a Christian. I don't dig into people's bios that much, but I listened to him as a military uh, leadership kind of, uh, kind of speaker. And I, I listened to some of the things he says. And, um, and I've, I've never been through a process like what they describe as BUDS or the basic underwater diving school that the SEALs go through. I've never been through anything like that. I've been through, through processes that are supposed to test you and strengthen you and tear you down and build you up, but never anything like this. But what the SEALs will tell you, see, I'm talking completely about something I don't know experientially, but I've read about and heard about. What the SEAL school is designed to do is to show you that whether you are a super athlete or not, your will is stronger than you think. You can do more than you think you can. And all you have to do is commit to never quit. And the people that quit, that ring that bell, they say, I want to go home, get a sandwich because they're freezing in the, in the coastal waters in uh, California as they're being put through some really, I mean, the Pacific ocean is cold and they're, and they're almost brought to hypothermia in some cases to hypothermia to bring them back to hell and see what they can accomplish. These people are basically tortured to, to get through this process that shows that you can, if you commit to a course, you can complete it. Don't quit is the point. And so it's, they're looking for those people to be on the seal teams that won't quit. That's kind of, it seems like that's kind of the ethic. If, if I'm, I'm missing it, um, I'm certainly willing to be schooled on this. But when you see like the, the documentaries or, you know, videos of these people going through this process and hell week and buds and stuff, they, 
they want to quit. And most of them or a huge portion of them do because they don't want to suffer anymore. It hurts. And Timothy's in this condition where he's like, if I could just not go back to the church, I could just not serve anymore. I could just not make disciples of these Ephesians and there's no more stress or pressure. And Paul is saying you can, but don't, you shouldn't, you must not because of whom we serve. Consider what I'm saying for the Lord. And it's all about him. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ is what you do in suffering. That's in Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three. The way you get through the hardship is you keep looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The way we get through the hardship in first Peter chapter two, when you're suffering under unrighteous uh, authorities, and verses 18 through 25, what you do is you keep entrusting yourself like Jesus to God who judges righteously. You look at the example of Jesus Christ who suffered far worse at the hands of sinners than we ever can because he's far more righteous because of many reasons, because he's the focus of Satan's antagonism and hatred in this world. Remember Jesus Christ when you think about this suffering. You have to read the passage in context who has been raised from the dead, from the seed of David, according to my gospel. Paul just grabbed the entire Old Testament and said, the whole thing we believe, the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, the seed of David, the promise of the Old Testament is a king who will rule on David's throne forever. We're not there yet, but we, Timothy, are recruiting those who will rule with Jesus Christ in his Davidic kingdom over the nations as the king of Israel. That's right, Israel over all the nations forever and ever and ever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. Of the increase of his kingdom and glory, there will be no end forever and ever, says Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. Remember Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead, from the seed of David, according to my gospel. Now, why does Paul bring our attention from suffer hardship with me like a soldier, like an athlete, like a, like a farmer with these good outcomes? Why does he go from there to saying you need encouragement by thinking about these things and, and God will help you understand. And then he takes you to focusing on Jesus because if Jesus is raised from the dead, if he is of the seed of David, therefore he will rule on David's throne forever. And that's our, our destiny, our eschatology. If that is the gospel, the good news, then the current circumstances I'm in are now in context. What was to me an overwhelming problem of hardship has now been reduced to its proper proportion. Not that it hurts less, but that I can rejoice more in the eternal perspective that God's given me from an entire look at the scriptures. God is doing something with broken and sinful humans to ultimately redeem us and ultimately regenerate us to the new body without sin in perfect obedience to God forever and ever. And the brokenness that you experience in this life it hurts. It is in the pattern of Jesus. It is suffering along with Jesus. It is to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as our focus. And it is temporary. It's only for now. So you've only got X number of days left to hurt for Jesus in ministry. Let's get up and dust off, get, out, get that drink of water, and let's go hurt for Jesus in ministry. That's what he's doing in 2 Timothy. This is the last letter of Paul. This is the death note of Paul. I'm going to die this is his last words that we have from the beloved apostle Paul. What you see there is the light at the end of a glorious tunnel, the conclusion of the Christian life of Paul in this study. And I want to just bring it out. I'm taking, I'm slowing down a little bit, but I want you to see what's happening. Remember Jesus Christ as you have to suffer hardship. That's your power. That's how you'll get through this. 
not just gutting it out and willpowering like the guys at Bud's, but considering Jesus. Now, maybe those guys, some of those are, but considering Christ empowering me as I think of his example, I think of his suffering as his spirit strengthens me for what I have to deal with. And then in verse nine, in which I suffer, you consider Christ according to my gospel. In this gospel, I suffer hardship to the point of change like a criminal. Timothy's not imprisoned as far as we know. He probably has been horribly ridiculed and embarrassed publicly, but he's not in prison. Paul's chained. I suffer chains, imprisonment like a criminal for this gospel that you need to get back into the ministry of. But the word of God is not chained. Here I am writing this letter to you. And it, boy, is it not chained. When I read and preach on 2 Timothy, I have to tell you, I have such a blessing. I have such an encouragement. I have such a lift because it, it confirms what we experience and reminds us what God has already told us. And we get back in the harness. That's what we do with 2 Timothy. Is the word of God ever not chained that Paul is writing now that is affecting me 2,000 years later? It's going to hurt now, but the word of God isn't chained. Because of this, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. The elect ones, the eclectus. Eclectus. These people who for whatever reason are elect or chosen by God. I've had some say it means choice. It means the ones that are super, that, that are desirable. So they're choice. But again, why are they chosen? Why are they choice? What about them? Such a person would not say because they're so good in themselves. We're not. We're sinful and broken. But what it does mean is the ones that God has marked out for salvation. Again, the Arminian-Calvin debate is not resolved by this verse because Arminius just said, we know why God elected. This verse doesn't tell you why God elected. The Calvinists will say, we don't know why God elects. It's purely in his eternal counsels. So the, the, that debate isn't resolved, that rational process of trying to come up with why someone's elect. And by the way, if it hangs in your throat, if you're worried about this word election, it's because you're worried about why does God do it? That's your problem. And what you, and I need to do with that is rest in the God who will visit judgment to the third and fourth generations in Exodus 20, but who visits uh, uh, blessing and honor and, and promotion on the thousands and tens of thousands of generations, the God of love of the scriptures. You need to trust him and let him be God and you not try to be God. On the other hand, I, I would say the Calvinist reasoning that says if humans are making choices and God isn't making the choice, then um, then God isn't really sovereign, misses what I'm talking about in terms of God's otherness. He is higher and far above us in his decision cycle. And again, let God be God. And when God says you have a choice to make, uh, own the responsibility. Because of this, I endure all things for the sake of those to whom I've been called to preach, those to whom who are going to respond in this message of the gospel. Now, God could occur it to the person that he wants to believe in Christ, that they need to trust in Christ without any, any messenger. But notice that God has so sovereignly designed human history and the mission of the church that we have to go and share. Romans chapter 11, how they believe, or Romans 10, how they believe unless someone comes to preach the gospel to them. God uses people, but it is God's work through people. Never misunderstand that. It isn't the people talking to William Carey as he's trying to go to India and saying, well, in our Calvinist theology, you don't have to go because God's going to save the, the, the heathen Indians if he wants to. 
No, you need a gospel preacher to go. But don't then jump into the weird Pelagian world of, well, I'm going to make this happen myself. It is God's works through us that summarize the Christian walk. And the ministry to which we are called is like Paul. Because of this message of the gospel and the coming of Jesus Christ, and that the gospel isn't chained, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they too will attain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. So we start with, remember, verse 8 says, look at Jesus. Sorry, yeah, yeah, verse 8 says, remember Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, the gospel isn't imprisoned or chained. And verse 10 says, think about the people that Jesus has sent us to serve. So it's God and man, and the power is in that message. Now, they too will attain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This word salvation is an interesting and difficult word because in English to us, it means someone is a believer. They've made a decision for Christ and they're finally delivered from hell. But most of the time, the New Testament writers use the word here for salvation, which is translating here this word soteria. It is not talking about final deliverance from hell. You and I have been saved in that sense if we've trusted in Christ. But in the scriptures, we are being saved as we trust in Christ in terms of the success and effectiveness of our lives for him. In other words, salvation in this phase of life is not whether you're going to heaven. It's how you're getting there. It's what you're doing with your life. Are you wasting your witness and the opportunities given to you? Or are you being delivered from futility? I really think a lot of salvation in the New Testament is this category. And Paul doesn't distinguish which, what, which one he's describing. But I'll tell you right now, the part of salvation that applies to me and you, if you have Christ right now, is that today matters and you can waste it. And it doesn't mean that you're going to go and lose your salvation like the Arminians suggest. Right? That doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation. It means that of your position in Christ and you're being set apart to him forever and the guarantee of your eventual resurrection to glory in the resurrection body. You don't lose that. What he's talking about very often, and it may be here, is that you and I have a purpose and to miss the purpose is to miss out. Save me from futility. Save me from wasted life. A lot of times salvation refers to that. I want to mention that in passing because I think it's important to be careful here and not say something the text isn't saying. Well, this is our context. Paul tells Timothy to pick it back up and get back to work by focusing on Jesus Christ and the power of the ministry of the gospel, just like Paul does because of those that God has called us to serve. Now it's a trustworthy statement. Pistos halagos, it is a faithful word, literally. Pistos halagos, the word is faithful. And here is the explanation. For if we soon apothenesco, if we died in the past together, if we died together, aorist um, indicative meaning past completed action. If I died in the past, I'm gonna bring out the tenses, the time frame in which he's speaking because I think it matters. If we died together in the past, the way this verb is stated in the aorist tense, you don't have to know all this, but I just wanna validate something with you. The way the verb is stated, it seems to be describing something that is simply a fact. It's simply a fact, we died, if we died with him. And the implication of the conditional phrase is when we did die with him. If we died with him, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've been through Romans chapters three through six, if you have trusted in Christ, if we died together in the past, then also we will. And then he says, 
Sue's Asum and we will in the future live with him. This is a very explicit little sigma right here. That sigma, that little S letter that looks like an O with the flag on the top, that is telling me that it is absolutely dogmatically a future tense. And there is a minority of Greek scholars that will say it doesn't mean future time frame, but they're in the minority. The future tense is designed to tell us uh, the future. It's coming in the future. That's the only purpose for that um, morpheme. I contend, and I could, be, I could be challenged by Greek scholars, but I don't think they're in the minority today. Also, I, I think they are in the minority today of Greek scholars. Then also, we will live together. That's soon, um, um, that's suzao, to live together in the future. And with him isn't stated, it's just understood. So if we die together, we'll live together. If in the simple past we die together, in the simple future, we will in the future live together. That's the first piece of the poem. Now, if we did it, then. If we died and we did, then we will live together in the future. I believe verse 11 is not canceled by verse 13. Verse 11 means what verse 11 means and it's settled. And we don't need the rest of the poem to know the meaning of verse 11. It's settled. Timothy is a believer. And if he's trusted in Christ, then he has died with him. In what sense? Think about the way he talks about the fact that you're saved. You died with him. You will in the future live with him. He's not talking about Timothy's suffering hardship. Now he said, if in the past you died with him, we will in the future live with him. Think about this. Why does he say you died with him? And nobody here has physically died. He's not talking about that. When you trusted in Christ, you didn't die spiritually, but quite the contrary, you were made new in Christ with the new birth. So it's not talking about spiritual death. So what does he mean you died with him? It is a reference and it's the most important insight for the poem. It's a reference to your position in Christ. Jesus died for you. And when you trust in him, the baptism of the spirit unites you to Jesus in his death in his burial, in his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. It's called positional truth. That's the sense in which you died with him. He died in your place, and then you're united to Christ in his past, present, and future through the baptizing or unifying ministry by means of the Spirit. You're in union or identified with Christ. That's what he means when he says, if we died with him. That's how you died with him. You did not go to a cross, but when Christ went to the cross for you, that work was applied to you and you were unified with the one doing that work through the, again, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this is what he's actually talking about when he says we died together. And so guess what? That carries with it. Having died and being unified in his death, you are going to live together. You're in union with Christ in his life. Paul is talking in this little poem, this little ditty here about position in Christ in the first instance. The second one, and reformed people generally won't disagree with that, but they'll disagree with most of the rest I'm going to say. If we go on enduring in the present, if we go on enduring, I've, I've said it two different ways. I've brought out the present tense. Hupomeno, to endure, to, um, to abide over in, in, a, in a super sense or to, to abide long. Meno is to abide or stay put. Hupomeno is to abide through hardship or something. And we'll, we'll translate it endure. It's in the present tense indicating at least that it's internal to the action. Like we are enduring if we are enduring. And so it's a present tense verb and it may well indicate present time frame. So now we're where Paul is addressing Timothy. If we're enduring, remember he said, I endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. I'm enduring. He said this word. And now he's saying, if we endure, if we are enduring, he's picking Timothy up and saying, come on, let's get after it. If we go on enduring in the present, then also sum baziluo, we will in the future 
there's, a, there's my little sigma, my little future maker. I will together soon, Baziluo rule to be king over, to rule. We will also reign together and it's in the future. And it's important that Paul uses the future tense here. If in the present we're enduring and then in the future we will reign. Does that sound like there's a condition on reigning? Seems like there's a condition since it's stated as a conditional. It's a kind of a joke that I say is a condition. E-I there, the A is the if, if it's a condition. There is something about reigning together with Christ that's conditional. But notice he says, if we go on enduring in the present and we do by implication, then we also in the future will reign. Now I have theologians that I respect and admire who will say everybody rules with Christ. And I think that there is plenty of scripture that in a sense, yes, we're all part of that class called the church that rules with Christ. But I also have plenty of parables like in Luke 19 that indicate there is a gradient of this. There's a gradient of responsibility in the coming kingdom. If we go on enduring and see, this is the, this is the farmer gets to eat the fruit. This is the athletes competing according to the rules. This is the soldier who's pleasing his boss instead of getting entangled in the, in the distractions. If we go on enduring as a good soldier, we'll reign together in the future. Now, again, reformed will say the first two are for Christians. The last two are for not Christians. I say the first one is true of Timothy. The second one is what Paul is calling Timothy to. And it's in question and it's not settled that he's going to endure in terms of this ministry. If we deny him or if we deny this word, our to deny something. And it is in the present. If we deny my, your Bible says that you deny him, right? His requirement that you endure with him. But it, it just says, if we deny now, people will turn this into saying, I don't believe in Jesus. And then this becomes a straw man to say a, a person that's not really a Christian or that they've lost their salvation. But the word doesn't necessarily mean to denounce Christ like Peter did three times to deny Christ. It can be to not give him what he wants. And in context, that's exactly what it means. If we endure, he's telling Peter, I'm sorry, he's telling Timothy to get off, get off the, the, the dust there, dust off and get back to work. That's the calling to endure. If we deny, if we say no to this, if we have negative volition to the instruction to get up and endure, there's a consequence. If we go on denying, then that one will in the future. There's my little sigma in the middle of the word telling me it's in the future. He will deny us. That one, kakenos, that one is Jesus, will deny us. Now, people will take you right away to the Gospels and say, if you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my father and make that what Paul is talking about. And it could be, but you got to read that one in context too. Because the way a lot of people do that is they say, well, if you don't pr pr preach Christ, then you can't be saved. That, that, that cancels your faith in Christ that resulted in your justification and all the things that God did the moment you trusted in Christ, they cancel. And so it's an Arminian doctrine that you, your faith is saves you, but so does your preaching Christ. Cause if you don't preach Christ, then you're lost. And the problem is that everybody wants to do some sort of work to save themselves or keep themselves saved. And it's the work of Christ on the cross that saves you. Paul is not contradicting in his last epistle, everything that he's written in Galatians and Romans and Ephesians and Colossians. He is not canceling Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to say that there is a denial coming for you by that one, by Jesus, in the future if we deny, if we go on denying. In verse 13, if we go on being unfaithful, if we apistuo, 
Again, the one interpretation say this means to not believe, and it could, or it could mean to be unfaithful. In context, he's telling Timothy to be faithful, to go do the hard work, to endure. This is not about whether you trust in Christ as your Savior. It's whether you're serving Christ in the work. In other words, what tends to happen with this passage is it makes every believer uh, not a believer unless they're in the harness working as Timothy is not working. So Timothy's not even a Christian the way this is often interpreted. But if we go on being unfaithful, I'm saying go on because of the present continuous aspect. If we, were, if we are unfaithful, that one again in the present, that one again, pistos mene, and there is no then, it's just that one remains faithful. And so I've, I've interpretively sort of paraphrased, nevertheless, in contrast, if we are unfaithful, that one goes on remaining Pistos. Mene is to abide or to remain, and the description of, of his abiding is in faithfulness. Here's what people do with this. They say the first sentence, the first thing, if we don't believe him, but he remains faithful. Well, you could just as well translate it if Jesus, if you if you aren't faithful to him, then Jesus goes on believing you. Because pistis and pistos and, and these words for faith can mean faithfulness or the faith of the person. I think it's consistent. I think it's all talking about Christian performance and faithfulness, living the life, doing the work. And none of that saves you from hell. It's what you do because you're saved from hell. So in context, Paul is telling a Christian to get out of the dirt and get back to work. This is only motivating us. This is only motivating us if it applies to us. And telling you that you who have Christ, who are blood-bought by the blood of Christ, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, you who have Christ, therefore you have the life. To tell you to question whether you have the life because you're not getting tortured for the gospel is absolutely foreign to what Paul is saying in the passage. He's saying there is a reward for you to attain. You need to get up and go get it. He's a coach in your corner saying, let's get back in the fight. And then to deny himself, he's not able. There's no, uh, there's no particle four. It's just a, it's just a summary sort of aphorism, like a, like a poetic summary. He, to deny himself, he's not able. All right. The contextual grace interpretation of this is if we died together in the past, then also we will live together in the future. That's your position in Christ. If we go on enduring in the present, then also we will reign together in the future. This is your reward in Christ. If we go on denying in the present, if we don't step up, if I don't get off out of the dirt and get back to work, Timothy, then that one in the future will deny us the rewards that he wants to give us. There is a consequence of the judgment seat of Christ. If we go on being unfaithful in the present, nevertheless, that one goes on remaining faithful in the present parallel to having our position in Christ. Why? Because we're in Christ to deny himself. You are in Christ to deny himself. He is unable. The first thing is about your position in Christ because you died with him, so you live with him. The last thing is about he will not deny himself in terms of your position. And what I'm saying, therefore, is that the first one, the first couplet in verse 11, is about your salvation in Christ, your new birth that you received the moment you trusted in Christ. The last one is about the fact that nothing takes you out of his hand and in the middle in a chiastic Hebrew style poem, this is very common in Hebrew culture and you see it in the New Testament all the time, it's center seeking. The outside two or your phase one, I'm trusted in Christ and nothing takes me out of his hand. 
The middle part is what is in question. If we endure, we'll reign in the future. If we deny, he will deny in the future. The opportunity to reign. It's your phase two. What are you doing with your life? The reason I, tra- I tell you this is the correct slash contextual interpretation is because it applies to Timothy. He's telling Timothy, you have to get to work in the ministry. And that work is calling you to hardship and difficulty. The reformed or lordship position takes the first two couplets and the last two couplets and says, you have believers in the first two and non-believers in the last two. They say that if you, if we died, then we'll live. And all those who die will go on enduring and therefore will reign in the future. And they say it's inevitable, therefore, that the person who's a believer will fully perform. But the reason Paul writes 2 Timothy is because you have a believer who's not performing. You see the problem? So if you superimpose your theology, and I started there with, I have my theological view, and I had to put that aside completely and look at it in context. If you start with your theology that you know, I already know how this all works, and you put it on the text, then you can make poems say anything you want. It's a poem. I wouldn't use it as I have in the past for the proof text because it is very easy to read it this way, the, the reformed position, and, and take people's security away from them and say, well, you know, if, if you deny Christ, then it means you don't really, you're not really a Christian. You know, when the apostle Peter wasn't an apostle yet, when he was just a fisherman who was a disciple of Jesus, when he was standing around the, the, the charcoal fire denying Jesus Christ, I have a question for you. Was that before or after Matthew 16 where he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? And he said, on this rock, I'll, I'll build my church. And I don't think the rock is Peter. I don't think the rock is Peter's profession. I think the rock is Christ himself. And Peter is a little rock, off, a chip off the old block. That's how I think of the, the Petros and Petra uh, discussion. The great rock is Jesus. He's the quarry. He's the, 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 the cornerstone. And Peter, like us, we're, we come to him as living stones, as ones in him. Now, Matthew 16 is a long time, at least, at least a week before. Actually, I haven't done the chronology of Matthew in a long time. It's a long time before Peter denies Jesus on the night he's betrayed. He denies Christ with cursing. He's cursing in a Galilean accent. And they know from his curses that he's a Galilean. We know you're with him. I don't know him. Expletive, expletive, bleep, bleep, bleep. Is Peter not regenerate when he denies Jesus thrice? Does he not have the life? Has he not been born again, as Jesus says in John 3? Are you the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and you don't know that you have to be born again? Is Peter, do we really think Peter is a, not a believer? No, there's two things. There's the reform school. Let, let me oversimplify and say, well, he wasn't really saved yet. Or he'll, he'll eventually repent. He's saved, but he's, you know, he's, he's confused. I'm in that position. He's saved, but he's confused. And he's being unfaithful in that moment. And then there's the Arminian school that says, no, he was saved when he said that, but then he lost it when he denied Christ. He committed a sin that would lose your salvation. And that on both accounts, what happens is you never know if you have the life and you're never living in gratitude, receiving the grace that you received and gratefully living out your salvation because you're trying to earn it. You're trying to secure it. You're trying to keep it. But when you have the life, when Jesus has brought you to die with him so that you will in the future live with him, when that's settled, that you're in Christ and the promise is that he cannot deny himself You're not worried about whether you're going to heaven, beloved. You're not concerned 
I can never suspend you like a spider, Christians, over the flames of hell like they did, like Jonathan Edwards did over in Massachusetts. I can't preach that sermon to you, Christians, and say, you're just, a, you're just a, a spider's leg breaking off from going into the lake of fire. You need to repent. I can't tell you, Christians, that. It would be helpful if I could threaten you with hell. I could get all kinds of behavioral modifications out of you if I could suspend you over the lake of fire. And that idiocy has been done to great damage by the systematic theologies, by the theologians. But what Paul is talking about is the loss of what Christ has saved you for in its full expression, the joy of service to him now under pressure and forever in the coming kingdom. Do I say that there are Christians who won't rule with Christ? I don't say that in the sense of being part of the church, the body and bride of Christ that will rule with him. But I do say some of us are marked out for dog catcher. In the coming kingdom, there are different, there's gradients of, of responsibilities. And when you die the sin of death, when you forfeit your, your spiritual life, when you waste the resources God has given you, it doesn't look good for the promotion phase when he says, okay, based on performance and the walk by the spirit, here are the responsibilities I'm going to lay out. Well, the, the reform position will take you to, uh, to say you will inevitably serve and you will inevitably reign because you're inevitably uh, going to perform. And so your life becomes an examination of whether your performance is there. And then they say, if we deny in the present, then he'll in the future deny us. And that means to them, if they don't believe in Christ, then, you know, he's going to say, I didn't know you, which is true. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about whether you rule with him. If we go on being unfaithful, that one goes on remaining faithful in the present. And then, and then, he's, and then the lost are, are the ones that, um, that are denied. And Jesus is being faithful in this somehow to himself in terms of his character. It glorifies him to reject those who have not trusted in him. So, so that interpretation of this in verse 13 says that Jesus is glorifying himself in condemning those who don't trust in him. But that doesn't seem to, again, it's not what he's saying in context. It's not even what he's talking about. When he says you've suffered with him, you'll rule with him. Um, I'm sorry, if you died with him, you'll live with him. That's a positional true statement. When he says to deny himself, he's not able. He's saying you are in him and he won't deny you the life that he's given you. He secures you even if you're faithless. He secures you with his faithfulness, not your faithfulness. That's the idea that Paul is, is getting to, I believe, in context. But let me, let me close with this thought. The meat of it, the center of this, of this chiastic structure, the, the center-seeking poetic structure, the center is always the focus. The part of this that applies to Timothy especially in this moment. Now he needs to apply the truth that Jesus has me and won't let me go. He needs to apply his eternal security to his circumstance. And he's not worried about going to hell if he doesn't preach Christ or something. That's not the design, obviously, of the passage. Timothy needs to know that there is something on the table that he wants to receive. There is, there is the, to the victor go the spoils. There is the gold medal at the end of the athletic race. There is the pleasing the boss, that outcome that I get if I don't entangle myself with the distractions. There is the desired end state of these three illustrations Paul already gave us. So it is a, it is a trustworthy statement. It's a faithful word that there is something in question for you and me. Again, I've used this in the past or seen it used, I should say, as a proof text for eternal security and the question of the conditionality of your rewards. And I believe that's what Paul is talking about, but it's a poem and it's hard to, 
dogmatically state it when you actually do the exegesis of the poetry. But I do. I think he's definitely talking to a believer about what uh, is in, in question for you. And eternal life, having the life or going to heaven is not in question for you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we close with the gospel ministry, the gospel message for those of you who may be in the hearing of my voice who've never considered Jesus Christ as your savior. I've fed the flock. I've spoken to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And now it is my purpose to speak to you. If you've sat through all of this and you've thought, what in the world is this about? What are we doing here? Well, the message is simple that you need to die with Jesus so that you can live with Jesus. How do you die with Jesus? Well, this is interesting. You can't do anything. You can't suffer hardship to get saved. As we've heard uh, Paul tell Timothy to suffer hardship. You can't uh, promise to do better. You can't say my sin, oh, my sin. It makes me dirty and I hate it and I put it away. You can't do that to be saved. That does not save you. The only thing you can do to receive eternal life, the only method by which God has designed you would have his life is to trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. It is faith in him, not horror at your sin, although you should be in horror of your sin because of the righteousness and holiness of God. But let's start with what Jesus did about it. He died for your sins on the cross because he loved you. Jesus, uh, the apostle uh, Paul said that he loved me and gave himself for me. John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And in 1 John chapter 5, we're told that if we have Christ, then we have the life. And that's the challenge. Not are you in horror or awe of your sins or in desperation about your wickedness, although that's the fact of the case, whether you feel it or not. The question is, what do you do about it? What did Jesus do about it? Jesus paid for your sins and mine on the cross. And the difference between you and me, if you don't have Christ, is that you are a sinner without Christ and I'm a sinner with Christ. And that makes all the difference. The only difference is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this eternal life. We thank you for the privilege we've had to think through some challenging things this morning. And I ask that we be reinforced with the promise of your life that you've given us, that having died with Christ, we are promised that we will live with him. Now, Father, let us be good soldiers and be about the mission you have for us, not to presume upon your work in us or to presume upon how we're going to carry it out, but just to avail ourselves to the work of making disciples. I ask in Jesus' name, we all said amen.